What up, what up? Welcome back to another episode of the Action Academy podcast, a show that teaches you how to replace corporate with cash flow and helps you unlock your inner entrepreneur. My name is Brian Lubin, your humble host and guide. In March of 2022, I left my corporate job and left to travel the world as I built my own business from zero to $10 million a year. This podcast is the documentation of my journey along the way so that you guys can do it uh, faster safer and way more eloquently than I did. (laughs) So today's episode is a cash flow clip with my buddy Walker Diable, one of the authors of Buy Then Build, which is a fantastic book if you're looking to get into small business acquisition. Uh, Right now, the trending topic in the investing world is, should I invest in real estate or should I invest in businesses? Now, on the Action Academy podcast, for all those people that are new to the show, We talk about both, and I personally love both, and I think that both have a place. But in today's episode, we're going to make the argument for which should you choose. The answer, plot twist, is it depends. But Walker's going to state his case for why businesses are better for cash flow than real estate. So sit tight, stay tuned, and we're going to get into it. Now, guys, we are literally full on the calendar this week for uh, Action Academy intro calls for the community. So if you guys are wanting to hop in to the Action Academy community, you need to go in the show description, book a call, because right now we are running out of calendar spots. I have to move my um, time to 30-minute intervals to be able to fit everyone. So if you guys want to hop in before we increase the price 25% January 1st, show description. There you go. Thanks, guys. Let's get to it. I'm doing some real estate myself. I'm moving into that now. And it's one of these things where as I went through my path to try to figure this out, when I looked at real estate, what I saw was I really like the downside protection okay, of real estate, but the upside potential, like most of the value you get is in the equity buildup, right? And the upside potential is like appreciation of the market. Now, I know you live in Austin and you're like, Walker, are you talking about real estate just goes up 100% every year? But here in St. Louis, it's 2-3% over a long period of time. So the appreciation is actually pretty slow. When you look at businesses, if I were to translate cap rates, I might be buying a building that's like a 5 or 10% cap rate, maybe in that range. The same numbers in business acquisition is anywhere from, say, 25% to 40%. You can't get, most people are trying to get 35% returns on their money when they're doing the acquisition. So the cap rate is significant, like three times higher most of the time. And the upside is where fortunes are made, right? So you get the equity buildup, you get these real estate economics at play, but you get to go to work and be active in your business. And that's what I really promote, right? Because I think that once you have a business that is successful and you're the owner, you can't ever go back. You just, it's like you're in the matrix now. The red pill. You literally see everything. And I think that like so many people, if you knew how hard it was, you wouldn't, there's this sort of this lie. I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but let let me say this. There's this sort of lie out there going right now. Okay. Like when I published Buy Then Build, no one was talking about business acquisition. Brian, nobody. I didn't, I sat on the finished manuscript for nine months before I published it. Cause I was like worried that like it was all wrong, (laughs) crazy. Because I was like, why is nobody talking about this? It's so weird. And I'd spent all this time right in it. And and now there's the it's opposite seems to be a problem. It's, yes, you too can run out and buy a business and you'll be good. Most yeah. people probably shouldn't. And I want to be very clear about that. Most people probably shouldn't. Sure, go buy appreciating assets that hopefully cash flow, right? Yes, do that. Go hang out with Brian, learn all the t- tips, tricks, and strategies to get that done, right? 
When you want to dive in and start, like, imagine you're starting a business from scratch. You've got to have a really great idea. You've got to mm-hmm. be all in, right? This is full court press and you're going to do whatever it takes to succeed. When you buy a business, it's not any different. What happens is it's money ball for entrepreneurship. We get you on base first. We get the revenue, we get the product market fit, we get the infrastructure, we get the human capital and we get the profits. And then you get to build from there. So you don't have to worry as much about succeeding. You, mo- you mostly have to worry about like, all right, let's keep this on track and see if we can fulfill the potential of this business. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. question was, you got to focus on you and what you bring to the table. Second, the opportunity, okay? And in Buy Then Build, I've got a, an AE matrix. It's four quadrants. It's eternally profitable, turnaround, high growth, and platform, okay? Now, anyone in your audience that's in PE or familiar with PE is thinking platform means something. In acquisition entrepreneurship, I mean it in a totally different way. It's everything we just talked about. It's a platform for you and your skill set and what you can do with it, okay? The best companies that anyone can buy, right, is going to be a business that supports their skill set. So if I'm really good at direct sales and managing direct sales teams, I want to find a business with good operations and a great product and probably some people in place that are running, you know, Mm -hmm. running the, the manufacturing, for example, okay? If I'm really good at operational efficiency and just squeezing pennies out of dollars, I want to find something that's like fat and lazy with a couple of salespeople bringing the stuff in. So I can get sales and marketing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're just looking for what's that recipe. And the thing is, is like, we love to talk in generalizations. Okay. We love to talk about, yes, let's go find like tech enabled service companies or whatever. Okay. And I rattled that off there because if, if you're ever talking to a search fund investor, that's what they're looking for. Like they have a very specific investment thesis that they look for. Right. But the thing is you and I might be looking at the same business and it's not going to work for me. And it really works for you. And I don't know what that would be. Let's just say it's home healthcare business in Austin, Texas. Right. And so you're like, okay, like I'm good at this skill set. My everyone who listens to my podcast is is old and sick, and so they all need this service. So I'm just going to advertise, <laughs> make yeah. whatever it is, right? Maybe you have a, an existing infrastructure or a skill set that can really make that thing hum. Whereas for me, I might be looking at that and saying, I'm really bad managing people, and mm-hmm. so buying a business that has a hundred people providing service might be terrible for me, right? Because I got to be able to lead and manage and do all this with these people. I'm making up the nuances here. But the point is knowing what you're good at and what you bring to the table is the thing that will tell you if that business is good for you or not, because it's you matching with an opportunity. 100%. And I feel a lot of advice that we get in business school and kind of school in general in our traditional education, the formal education system up until this point is focus on your weaknesses. Let's focus on your weaknesses and build up your weaknesses. But I've found to be true in real estate, business acquisition and entrepreneurship in general, the people that have the most upsized returns are the ones that focus more on their strengths. And instead of building on their weaknesses, they hire their weaknesses or they partner with their weaknesses. So for instance, to, to land the plane with what you're saying, it'd be, I'm really good at sales and marketing. That's my strong suit. That's where I've been. That's what I enjoy. So for me, it would make much more sense to buy a business that's very operationally sound and they've got really good systems and really good management procedures and really good SOPs, but they are really lacking in social media and they're really lacking in like top line revenue generation. So like that's where I could come in and really thrive. Whereas if somebody's got a sales and marketing team already humming, 
that I wouldn't be able to add as much value to that business in the vice and the opposite also applies like the inverse also applies. So if you're very operationally minded, go for the one that's sales and marketing, they've got all the revenue in the world, but their conversion and their LTV is terrible, right? You got it. You got awesome. It. Man. The other thing I'd thread in there is where opportunities really exist. There's a lot of talk about, oh, I'm going to buy a company on the cheap or I'm going to like people, they want, people are trying to figure out how do I get something for nothing, right? And that's become very popular in this space too, right? It's, hey, I'm going to use non-personally guaranteed seller financing and I'm going to, and I'm going to, I'm going to wait for the recession to come because I don't want to buy all these businesses on the cheap. Um, I've been through a number of downturns and I'm going to just tell you two things happen in a recession. Number one, anyone with a decent business is sure as hell not selling. I've seen it twice. Okay. And number two, the businesses that actually are excellent are in a downward trend and all the buyers are so scared you can't get the damn thing sold. I'm not kidding. This is what happens in reality. Okay. Now you gave this example of you're great at marketing. So if you can find a business that can excel from what you bring, then you want to buy it. But, and you said, I want some existing systems and processes and all the rest of it. The other thing is if it, if it can have those things, but it doesn't. So in other words, you can see that and say, okay, I can hire someone who to come in and get it ISO certified or whatever level of EOS, whatever your thing is. And so a lot of times it might be like, okay, this has good bones, but it needs to use a real estate term value add. It's going to be a value add acquisition. And then I'm going to dump my marketing on top and we're going to set the world on fire. So if you can find something that's a little lazy and you can engineer all of those things in, then you're really going to be able to increase the the private market value of that entity that you've acquired. It's, it's finding your superpower because I interviewed Cameron Harold, who wrote Vivid Vision and he's a buddy of mine now. And he says, do what you do best, delegate the rest. And yeah, I love exactly. that. He's so delegate everything except for genius. And I'm like, yes. dude, yes. I'm that. like, that's freaking awesome. So you just hit on something really quickly that I'd love to hit on two parts to this question. Yep. One part is let's hit slightly on how businesses are valued for somebody that is maybe familiar with buying real estate and they understand cap rates, they understand how the purchase process of real estate works and they don't understand multiples yet. So let's talk about okay. how businesses are valued and then yep. let's go over that finance, those financing products. So you mentioned seller financing, going through a broker. Let's, let's mm -hmm. hit on how businesses are valued and then what different loan strategies that we can get to acquire them and utilize leverage okay, the best great. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so there are three words... EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA, and SDE. They're all completely different things, but the world loves to just re replace them as if they're all exactly the same. They're not. What we're going to focus on right now is SDE, okay? Because we, we do have limited time. I could talk for an hour about valuation, no problem. Seller's discretionary earnings. So this is going to be the anchor of any transaction, definitely under, say, $10 million, okay? And it's predominantly the unit of measure in anything under 25 million. Okay. Once you get north of 25 million, it's adjusted EBITDA. It's adjusted EBITDA. And then for publicly traded companies, it's EBITDA. Okay. And so at seller's discretionary earnings is basically, so you take the net income on the income statement. So the bottom line on the income statement, that's what you get taxed on every single year. Okay. Then we're going to start just by adding back any interest depreciation and amortization. Okay. We can go into why, 
But the argument is that that's the EBITDA number, right? Which sort of gets you to management decisions. Okay. So am I buying infrastructure and using leverage to do it? And then here's the expense of such on the P&L. And of course, depreciation and amortization are non-cash expenses. So they're not actually, it's not actual cash coming out, right? Sure. So you, you take that number, that's your EBITDA, but then you're going to add over and above that any sort of addbacks. Okay. And addbacks really fall in a few categories. The first is any one-time expenses. Okay. Terrible example, but we'll all understand if there was like some legal issue and all of a sudden the owner spent $250,000 in July of 2022 to fight it. And let's just say they won and it's a good story and every, everything's settled. And now we're all comfortable with it. Obviously, that's not an expense that's going to continue. It was a one-time event. And that could be for infrastructure. It could be on any number of things. Number two is discretionary spending. So that's going to be like, um, I took my family to Hawaii for my board of directors meeting, but really it was a family vacation. And yeah. I just ran the whole thing on. Or I put my my new Tesla, I ran it through my business or, you know, whatever. What I joined the entrepreneurs organization, right? I joined the Action Academy. And now, so now my, I don't know what you charge for that. You should charge a hundred thousand a month, but I think it's less than that. But so, I'm, so any <laughs> of these groups that, that I'm a member of, all that just gets added back. So it's discretionary. And then I'm sorry, there's something else I'm forgetting at the moment, but it's basically that it's that pre-tax. It's basically if you, if a business is a black box and the owner of that box has a certain certain amount of cash coming out for discretionary spending, that's what we're trying to figure out is what sure. is the cash flow coming off the asset, seller's discretionary earnings. From there, if we were in business school, we would be running a, a DCF model to come up with the net present value, but all complex mathematics, we all have shortcuts. And shortcuts is basically how many years worth of that SDE am I willing to pay for? this business. And it's usually somewhere between 2.5 times, so two and a half times that up to, let's just say five times. Okay. So anywhere from two yeah, and a half outside of the tech times. world. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> SaaS, if I'm talking with a potential seller, okay, a SaaS business is actually the only business I won't try to value in an hour. That actually takes some pretty deep analysis. So I'm being very general, right? It's yeah. like, most yeah. service businesses, right? Like between two to five. Yes. Yes, that's right. And then usually you would add any inventory on top of that, right? And other working capital like AR minus AP plus inventory on top. Cool. So when we're going and we're looking up these businesses to buy, we see maybe this HVAC company listed at a 3x multiple of revenue. We see this laundromat listed at a 2x. We see this company down the street listed at a 5x. What are some of the main levers that determine what multiple a company can list for? Okay. First and foremost is popularity of the business. Okay. And, and I really mean that. In, in other words, just for fun, I looked at buying someone in my network, a laundromat this weekend. I swear it was, the, but I requested information on four of them and all of the information came back and it was like, these valuations are obscene. Like I've been doing this a long time. <laughs> And laundromats were not priced like this, right? And so right now there's just a there's just a surge in popularity because people see them, I guess, as like low workload, steady cash flow. And so that's really in style right now, right? You know, when I wrote Buy Then Build, it was all about sexy tech startups. That's what everyone was paying attention to, right? So maybe I need to go write another book about doing a sexy tech startup right now because everyone's paying attention <laughs> to laundromats. But, but anyways, so popularity of the thing, right? So if I'm going to, if I, like right now, I probably am not going to buy anything in the pet space. 
because after COVID, everyone went out and bought a pet. And it just fueled these really expensive valuations on anything pet related. Um, so popularity. But then you start to get into fundamentals after that, right? And that's going to be like growth and earnings of the business, transferability of the business, meaning is there a whole bunch of specialized knowledge in the owner's head and they're walking out the door? Like, do I need to be, do I need to have a master's degree in solar engineering to run this company? That kind of stuff, just transferability, documentation. So it's amazing how many small business owners like don't actually have good financial statements and then they just file a tax return. A lot. Yeah, it's a lot. But if they've got good documentation and they've got SOPs around everything and all the rest of it, then you know, you've got a lot that a buyer can dig into. And that does increase the valuation because it's there's certain there's more certainty there. And then the other thing is growth opportunities, right? So if I own a subway, a subway, I'm I'm making this up, I have no idea. Let's just say a subway sandwich shop can make a million dollars a year. Okay. The odds that it's going to sell 1.1 or 0.9 million next year are really good. Okay. But that sandwich shop is not going to sell 2 million and then 3 million and then four. I need to buy more sandwich shops to do that. Don't you see? So if I'm just buying one sandwich shop, the growth opportunity of that one sandwich shop as a unit is like zero. Right. And so that's an example of something that might have a lot of downside protection, but there's very limited upside to it. Whereas if in and, and, and that same vein, as buyers, like we as entrepreneurs, you can tell when all the meat has been eaten off the bone. Hundred percent. Right? Yeah. Sellers think that oh, I'm going to max this thing out and then I'm going to sell it to somebody for maximum value. And it's no, you just extracted all the value. You need to sell it while it's going up if you're trying to sell for the highest price. And so if you can say if you're looking at a business and you're like, there is absolutely no reason why this is not going to continue to grow 30 or 40 percent every year. I literally can't think of an of a reason. Then you better understand that everyone's thinking the same thing. 